Father, thank you that we can gather this morning and sing that you're for us and not against us. In this world, sin, shame, and guilt often take over my heart. And I'm, I'm often running from you and not to you. And so thank you for the truth of the gospel that you love us, you pursued us in your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for dying the death that I owed, for paying the penalty I owed, for removing the sting of death and the fear of death. You're altogether good. Father, thank you for this group of people. We, we gather this morning with all kinds of needs, all kinds of fear, stress, pain. And so I pray for your body, your sheep, that, that this morning might be a time to offload that, to cast all of our cares and burdens and anxieties onto you, knowing that you care for us. Father, would you meet us through Genesis 48? Would you set our hearts free to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? Thank you for your deep, extravagant love. Father, would you instill and install that love in us that we might love others and shine as a light. Pray these things for, for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Welcome. Man, nine o'clock is filling up. Uh, is that because the hour changed? I'm trying to figure it. Uh, I'm getting signals. All right, here's the signal I'm getting. I'm going to interpret it. This means squeeze together because we got a whole bunch of people standing in the back. What is that? Don't squeeze? Yes, that's good. Thank you. Oh, do squeeze. All right. I'm not seeing a lot of movement. This is it. All right, squeeze it in. We've got a lot of people we still need to, to get seated. So, um, yeah, this, we're going to have to start getting more and more comfortable just sitting close to people. I understand the fear. Listen, I get it. You sit in the middle, you're not getting out easy to go to the bathroom. Amen? And it's a fear for all of us. We've got two here. We've got some corner seats here. We'll get it. Hey, if I haven't told you guys lately, I... And by I, I mean the team, the elder team, and I, we love you. We're so grateful. It's such an astounding body of Christ that we can get together and just have fun and enjoy dirty roads, dust, chaos all around us, telling people squeeze together right after they drink coffee, and you know somebody's going to have to get up and go to the bathroom. I just, y'all have not grumbled, complained, groaned, whined, I see it out there on the internets and on next door, but not from y'all. It's beautiful, so thank you. Love you guys. Guests, visitors, newcomers, first-timers, met a bunch of you, so glad you're here. This is Hillside. We believe Jesus changes everything, and he starts by changing us individually. He starts by changing me, and he does it in an astounding way. He'll, when you submit and surrender to Jesus, confess your sin to him, receive forgiveness from him, he gives you new life and he begins doing this work inside of you to change you, to, to make you look more like Jesus. Um, I'm, just, I'm, I'm not just a spokesman for Jesus. I've been and being changed by Jesus. My name's Dave, I'm a new creature in Christ and it just so happens I'm a recovering addict, uh, meth addict and alcoholic that Jesus is growing and changing. So it's so, so good to have you here. We've been walking through the book of Genesis, looking at the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ in Genesis, and we come to a beautiful passage. It's thrown me off for months, probably even years, honestly. Uh, and so I'm gonna try preaching it to you this morning, 
and I always reserve the right to be smarter and better later, and so I may be wrong on this, but I'm going to give you what I potentially, possibly, probably think Moses meant by this text. So let me read it to you. Genesis chapter 48. I'll read... I'm just going to read the whole chapter to you. It's so good. And I know most of you have probably never read Genesis 48, so I'm just going to read the whole thing to you. God says Moses writes this. This is the end of Jacob's life. 48, 49, and 50 probably should have been one sermon, honestly, because it's all Jacob dying. Genesis 48, now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, behold, your father, Jacob, is sick. So Joseph took his two sons, Manasseh, the older, and Ephraim, the younger, with him. And when it was told Jacob, behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel, Jacob, collected his strength and sat up in bed. Then Jacob said to his son Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give you this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession." Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are mine. But your offspring that you've been born, this is just Jacob adopting them so they're part of the promise. But your offspring that, that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their, their uh, brothers in the inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel, his wife, died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan. On the journey she died, when there was still some distance to go to Ephroth, and I buried her there on the way to Ephroth, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were, were so dim from age that he could not see, then Joseph brought his sons close to Jacob and, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph, watch this, Joseph took them from his knees and he bowed with his face to the ground. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand towards Israel or Jacob's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel or Jacob's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand, and he laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger. And his left hand, he placed it on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. Jacob blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads and may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Well, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head and put it on Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people and he also will be great. However, 
His younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you back to the land of your fathers. I I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. So that's chapter 48. There you have it. I'll I'll walk you through it because it seems like an odd chapter. And you read through and you're like, what am I supposed to do with this? How do I apply this? So if you walk straight through and read straight through the Bible, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, you read all of it. One of the central truths about God that you would walk away with is this, that God is the God of grace. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 says that God is the God of all grace. Now, this is a huge theological point. I know it's a stained glass theological word that most of us think just means pray before your meal. Grace is actually incredible. Let's, let me unpack it in two ways. When we talk about the mercy of God, we talk about what God withholds from us. Anybody sinned, been bad, and deserved judgment? Anybody here? Okay, most of us. Some of us will get it. You know, you just stay around long enough, I'll convince you you're a hot mess. God actually withholds. This is his mercy. He withholds what I actually deserve. I deserve condemnation, judgment, and hell. In God's mercy, he withholds that. Grace is different than that. This is where the gospel gets astounding. So in his mercy, he withholds, but in his grace, he freely gives to me that which I do not earn, have not deserved, and am actually unworthy of. So in his mercy, he withholds judgment. In his grace, he gives righteousness. He gives goodness to us, and we don't deserve it. God's the God of grace. It's one of the most surprising truths in all the scripture. For me, it's the most difficult doctrine to wrap my mind around. I get judgment. I get hell. I really do, because I I know I deserve it. When I look at a God of grace who freely gives to me what I haven't earned and don't deserve, my mind twitches. I'm like, that doesn't fit. Big theological picture, God's a God of grace. Small theological picture, sin always brings and gives guilt. Because of grace, when you understand it, you run to God. Because of sin and guilt, we run from God and we hide. That's where all of us are at. The Bible tells this story, it's called the gospel, that God so loved this world that he sent his only begotten son, his name is Jesus Christ, that Jesus lived a life without sin so he could die in our place for our sin. He was buried, he rose again, and now Jesus will take all of your guilt, all of your sin, all of your shame, and by his grace will give you all of his righteousness. That's called the gospel, the good news. Not one of us can earn it, not one of us deserve it, but God in his graciousness freely gives it when we repent, humble ourselves put our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what we're going to see today, I had to build that foundation because we're going to walk through chapter 48 and chapter 48 seems weird. It vexes me because it just seems like a 140-year-old dude, Jacob, pulls a grandpa gaff. You know, he does something weird. Grandpas do that sometimes, don't they? Smell your hair, do weird stuff. (laughs) Sorry, I'm so sorry, mom, dad. That just happened. That was real. 
just let it sit. You know, you'll get past it. So you read through it, and it seems like, man, why would you put a grandpa gaff in the scriptures where grandpa just, grandpas do weird things, and they're grandpas, so you just give them grace. Why would you put that in the Bible? What you're going to see today, grandpa doesn't gaff. Grandpa knows exactly what he's doing. It's taken grandpa 140 years, but I'm gonna show you, he gets it now. And although verse 10, he's blind physically, he sees exactly what he's doing. And he's gonna show us a picture of grace, what grace truly means and how God truly works. Jacob is now gonna look at his past and he's gonna look at his past through the lenses of grace and no longer guilt. All of us wear lenses when we look at our history. You know that? I'm gonna use an object lesson. Some of you get the gospel and you put on your lenses of grace and it changes how you see everything. Everything's bright. You look at your past through the lenses of grace and you see God at work. You look at the future through the lenses of grace and you see God shows up, shows off, God wins. Everything's pretty good in the future and you're good to go. Some of you don't understand grace, so you live with the lenses of guilt. And you put them on and it makes the past darker. And you look at the future through the lenses of guilt. If the past's been dark, the future's gonna be dark and things aren't good. All of you have lenses on today. Lenses that you see the past and the future from. And how you see the past is gonna determine how you walk into the future. And I wanna show you how Jacob in his dying breaths, he just rocks it. He finally gets it. I don't want it to take me 140 years to get it. I want to grasp grace today so I can put on the grace lenses, view my past through the lenses of grace, view my future through the lenses of grace so that I might be a person who walks in love and joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So let's jump in. Go ahead and pull up verse 15. Jacob's gonna look at his past. He goes through, remember in chapter 47, he said to Pharaoh, my days have been short and they've been, they've, pretty much they've been awful. They've been filled with evil. Here's the reality. All of us, every single one of us has a past and you have to interpret that past. You have to make some sense out of that past. Has anyone had a past where painful, hurtful, harmful, wounding things have happened to you? Anybody here? A past of where trauma, tragedy, hardship. Good, we all have a past because we're here and we all have to interpret that past and the lenses you wear is going to interpret that past. Let me give you a quick, about a 42 second rundown on Jacob's life. Jacob's life has been filled with problems and pain. We've just, we've looked at the dude's entire life. From birth, his dad did not like him. Do you know that? That's some of the pain, Jacob's pain. His dad liked Esau because he was strapping, he could kill, he could, he could make uh, uh, stews and stuff. So his dad liked his brother, not him. His mom used him to triangulate with his dad and cause like, all kinds of family chaos. And finally, Jacob was sent to live with his uncle, Laban, because his brother was gonna kill him. Laban used him, tricked him. Jacob worked seven years to to marry the love of his life, and he got tricked and married Leah. So he worked another seven, got tricked again. Then on his way out, his wife died. The love of his life died. And then his precious son, Joseph, his other brothers, his other sons, Joseph's brother said, no, Joseph died. 
Jacob lived at least two decades in clinical depression. He just didn't want to live. He could not function. Jacob's life has been devastating, hard. The question we're going to ask is, how does Jacob interpret his past? And the application that I'm going to look for is, how do you interpret your past? You see, as we walk through, you're either going to look through the lenses of grace and see your past as purposeful, or you're going to look through the lenses of guilt, and your past is going to own you. I want you to see, and I, here's what I want you to grasp as we walk through this. As sheep, and the Bible calls us sheep, do you know that as sheep, the sheep never, ever, ever interpret the shepherd's actions as loving? Do, do you know that? As sheep, when a shepherd functions to love you, you never interpret, a sheep never interprets actions to love as love. A sheep never interprets actions to care as caring. A sheep never interprets actions to rescue as rescue. You don't believe me? I'm going to show you the same video. My whistle's back. <laughs> Hillbilly. I started making fun of, fun of rednecks, and I've been whistling ever since. I think it's judgment, <laughs> but I'm going to put my lenses of, of grace on, so I don't think that. I want you to see, before we jump into 15, do you have that video? At, are you able to pause that at all when we go through? Okay, I'll t watch this, watch this. Okay, pause it, pause it. Can you pause it? I want to exegete this. I want to exegete this. Well, you can't. Well, there we go. Stop right here. Right here, what the sheep is not thinking is, I'm so grateful my shepherd is pulling me out of this ditch. <laughs> I was stuck and my shepherd grabbed me by the, the lamb chop and is rescuing me. I cannot wait to tell my shepherd how grateful I am that they're rescuing me. That's not what the sheep is thinking. What the sheep is thinking, what, is, what kind of idiot is hurting me? Who is doing this? What a jerk face. I can't wait to get away from them. Watch, I'll prove it. Go ahead and play it. Rescued, rescued. So, pause it if you can. So what you would expect from the sheep is that the sheep now turns around to the shepherd, humbles itself, and says, I'm so stupid. I jumped into a small trench from a trenching machine for water lines or electrical lines or something. I'm not sure, but I got stuck, and you rescued me. You loved me, and now I'm going to cuddle up to you and let you call me Snowball or Fluffy. I shall be your pet. You shall be my shepherd master, and I will submit to you. Not what the sheep does, not what any sheep anywhere at any time does in any way. In fact, what the sheep does, as soon as they're rescued, they run away from the shepherd. And the Bible calls you a sheep. This is actually how we interact with God. We run away and what do we do? Boom. <laughs> right back in. So go ahead and push play. We'll watch it in slow motion because it is so... It is so real about how you and I function with God. He rescues us. He pulls us out of the ditch. And we, con mucho gusto, go right back in. Now, go ahead and pull up verse 15 because I want you to see this. It's so good. You and I do the same thing. We get in trouble. We get in hardship. We get stuck. And we need a good shepherd. It's taken Jacob 140 years. He looks back at the past. He looks back at all of the story of his life. 
And here's what he says at the end of his life as he puts on the lenses of grace and interprets his story, all of his hardship, all of his pain. He says, he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my what? This is a huge deal, y'all. It's the first time it shows up in Genesis. God has never been called a shepherd before. Jacob, who is a professional shepherd at the end of his life, exegeting and interpreting his life, the hardship, the pain, the hurt, says, God's been my shepherd. That means I am a sheep. And sheep never, ever, ever interpret the circumstances of their life as being loved by the shepherd. I'll tell you what, it's true. It wasn't that long ago I checked into drug and alcohol rehab, 2003. This was in August in Texas. And what we do in drug and alcohol rehab is we often do exercises, team building exercises to help build camaraderie because as addicts and alcoholics, we live in isolation, alienation, and separation. And so you need to do team building exercises to help build community, amen? Yeah, it was an outdoor exercise in August where everybody got a spoon and there was one egg at the front of the line. There's 120 addicts and alcoholics in withdrawal. <laughs> in August, outside, and the first person began, and the mission was clear. Just get the egg from one side of the line to the other side of the line without dropping it, and you can't use your hands. I was placed in the middle of the line. About 45 minutes into it, I still hadn't seen an egg. <laughs> and I was infuriated because I was pretty convinced God had sent me there to punish me because I'd, I'd been bad. And I convinced myself, God hates me. He's against me. Clearly, he's against me because I'm, a, I'm with a bunch of losers that can't even get an egg from one side of the line to the other. Guys, it's simple. Just cup the egg and you just cup and flip, cup and flip. Let's get it done. Let's get back to our rooms so we can watch TV. We're outside. You see, I thought God was there because he was... He put me there because he was against me. It became very clear. I, I thought I was better than those people. I'm not like them. I, I self-admitted. Hmm. I'm in rehab by my own choice. That makes me a little bit better than the others. Amen? Amen? I mean, let's just be legit. This is how our minds work. At least I'm not like them. And God put me there, not because he hated me or wanted to harm me. He wanted to heal me from my pride and my arrogance where I didn't understand grace. I didn't understand I'm not better than anybody. You see, the sheep never understands when they're being loved. Jacob, at the end of his life, he finally gets it. And he says, the Lord, he's been my shepherd from the first day until now. Everything he has done has been to love me. What do you do with your past? How do you interpret your past? The pain, the hurt, the grief, the trauma, the wounding. You see, your past will either become a poisonous prison of self-pity or it can be transformed into a platform to proclaim his provision and his protection of you. It's going to be one or the other. If you're living in self-pity, I can guarantee you've got your guilt lenses on. You're saying, God, how dare you? That's what guilt lenses do. I'm writing my own story. How dare you mess with my story? 
I'd encourage you to put on your grace lenses because it'll change your, your tune. You'll say, God, how do you put up with me? A silly sheep that jumps in the ditch over and over and over. Now, I've got nine minutes. Watch this next part because here comes the grandpa gaff. It seems like a grandpa gaff, and it's vexing because you're wondering why is this in the Bible. So glad you're here. I'm going to go verse 12, 13, and 14 first. I want you to see this. Now Jacob, he puts on his grace lenses and he's looking out to the future. Before I get to 12, 13, and 14, all of us, I think, I think, I'll run a test, I don't know, but every single area and discipline of study I've found in college, all of us believe that this, this story that we're in ends somehow. Is that true? All of us look out at the future and say, this mug ends. Now we disagree on how it ends, don't we? I learned that early on because some thought it was nuclear war. Gorbachev was over there. And even as a third grader, I used to, my teachers would say it probably ends with nuclear war, so hide under your desks. Anybody else in school hide under their desk? Which was awesome because, I, you know, the desks, it felt robust. Then they showed us a video about a nuclear bomb going off and the whole house just getting swept away. I refused to hide under my desk at that point. I was like, let's just take it. Let's just be legit and take it because that desk isn't helping anybody. But then I was told by, by fourth grade, hey, it's global cooling. That's going to end it all. You look it up in time, it was 1980. It was global cooling. So I started collecting parkas. I'm like, it's not getting me. I'll have jackets. But then by 1990, it was global warming. So I traded the parkas for Speedos because it's like, we got to get ready for this, right? Pastors and Speedos. It's going to be a, we all, I would take biology class. It, it was about a, a mass pandemic. I would take meteorology class. They'd be like, no, it's a, it's an asteroid. And they're still pushing that. 2022, uh, 3QP, the asteroid. Anyway, doesn't matter. Constantly, somebody will have some way that this whole mug is going to end. Jacob looks out at the future and he's like, let me actually, through the lenses of grace, let me explain to you how it all ends because you don't have to freak out about it. Watch what he says. It's beautiful. Verse 12. Then Joseph took his boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, Ephraim the younger and Manasseh from his knees. He bowed with his face to the ground. Watch what he does next. Verse 13. Joseph took them both. Watch. He took them both. Ephraim with his right hand, because Ephraim's the younger. So with Joseph's right hand, he brings Ephraim to Jacob's left hand because that was the hand of non-blessing. Then uh, with Manasseh, he took him with his left hand towards Israel's right hand. So Joseph is setting this whole thing up. He's like, dad's old, dad can't see. I've got to nail the dismount on this one so dad doesn't mess up the blessing because dad's a grandpa I'm going to take care of dad's weaknesses. I'll put the kids in the proper order so that they get to right hand, left hand. You with me still? Watch verse 14. But Israel stretched out his right hand and he laid it on the head of Ephraim, the younger. Then he, then he took his left hand and put it on Manasseh, the older, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. So it seems like a grandpa gaff. But watch verse We'll go verse, where, where is it, 17? Watch this. So when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. Literally, he got angry. So now we've got some family issues going on, a little anger. 
It displeased him. So Joseph grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head and put it on Manasseh's head. That is, Joseph is saying, bless the right kid. Manasseh's the older, I want him blessed. I've got plans for Manasseh. I already have it set up for Manasseh to go to college, get a good degree, go to an Ivy League, get a good job. I've got plans for Manasseh. Anybody, can can you identify that with your firstborn? Hey, I've got plans for my kid. God bless my plans for my kid. That's where Joseph's at. Hey, bless the older. So he went to remove it, but watch verse 18. Joseph said to his father, or Joseph, Joseph said to his father, not so my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head, verse 19. But his father refused. See, this isn't a grandpa gaffe. Watch this. His father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. That is, I know exactly what I'm doing. This isn't because I'm 140 and I've lost my senses. I know exactly what I'm doing when I'm crossing my hands. This isn't an accident, Joseph. I know that you have plans for your son and for your family, and I know that you have it all set up, and in your mind you have this beautiful outline of how life will go. I know, I know. The question is, why is Jacob doing this? And the answer is because he's teaching Joseph about the gospel of grace. You see, it's taken Jacob 140 years, but as he's looked back on his life, he realized God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. God's kingdom does not function like our kingdom. Our kingdom, the first shall be first, the strong shall be strong, the rich shall be rich, and God works through the Ivy League, the powerful, the mighty, the strong, the firstborn, hopefully the male, hopefully with a big bank account. Now we say, well, man, we're progressive. We would never think like that. Oh, yes, we do. That's why we want bigger congregations, more money. We want to be big because God works through the big, the bold, and the beautiful and those who have big bank accounts. Jacob is saying, that's not how God works. In fact, God's kingdom is upside down. And he's teaching, he's teaching Joseph, who was not a theological slouch, but he crosses his hands to teach Joseph a lesson. As he looks back at his life, he says, you gotta understand, son, God worked through Abel, not Cain. Remember that story? He worked through the younger, the weaker, the least. Then he worked through Sarah, not Hagar. He worked through the barren, the weak, the broken, the hurting, the hopeless, the humble. Then he worked through Isaac, not Ishmael, the younger, the weaker, the lesser. Then he worked uh, through Jacob, not Esau, the stronger, the bolder. Then he worked through Judah, not Reuben and Perez. He always seems to work through the weaker, the lesser. The the ones that the world says God can't work through that one. Jacob crosses his hands and says, son, you've got to understand God's not going to write the story you want him to write. God's writing and directing a story and it doesn't matter what you want. He's going to work through the empty, the humble. You see, it's a beautiful picture. You understand that the gospel comes to the humble, but it also comes through the humble. 
The gospel comes to the weak, but it also comes through the weak. The medium is the message. Why do we keep saying we need to be more powerful, more profound, more platforms? God, make us great so we can proclaim your message of grace and humility. God says, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cross my hands. The message of the gospel only comes to the empty and to the humble, but it can only come through the empty and through the humble. The medium is the message. Jacob crossed his hands because he finally got the gospel. You see, I started out by saying this passage seemed boring. Do you have Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21 back there? When I read the New Testament, do you know the New Testament said this was the greatest act of faith that Jacob ever did? This crossing of his hands. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. This is the, the hall of faith. This is the famous people's hall of faith where they do astounding things. What did Jacob do that's astounding? I could come up with a bunch of stuff. He wrestled God all night long and prevailed. I probably would have put that in the hall of faith. Amen? Even in this passage, he took over the Amorite with his sword and bow. I would have said, by faith, Jacob went in like an elf from Lord of the Rings and he took over a city by faith. That's not what the author of Hebrews says. It says, by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. And he worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. Why was this a huge act of faith for Jacob? I think it's because he finally got it. God works through the weak. God works through the humble. God works through the empty. God works through the powerless. God works... Through, the, through those who are poor in spirit. You see, Jacob crossed his hands because thousands of years later, the heavenly father would cross his hands at Calvary. Do you know that? You see, Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life. He was the firstborn of the father and he deserved to be blessed. He deserved the father's blessing, but the father crossed his hands and broke and bruised his son so you might be blessed. He crossed his hands. Jesus deserved, he earned the crown of righteousness, but the father crossed his hands and gave him a crown of thorns so that you might be called righteous. Jesus deserved to be celebrated because he never sinned in thought, word, deed. He deserved to be celebrated, but the father crossed his hands and Jesus was crushed so that your record might be cleared. God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for you. You see, the gospel only comes to the humble. Christianity is the easiest world religion ever. What does it take to be a Christian? Nothing, it's free grace. You just come empty. You humbly repent, I have nothing. It takes humility, emptiness, nothingness. And because it takes nothing, it's the most difficult religion ever because we love to bring something, don't we? God, I go to church every week. I give, I serve, I work hard. I try and keep my marriage in line. I try hard. God, accept that. And he says, you don't understand. You, you have to come with nothing because I can only fill the empty. I can only fill the humble. What are you bringing today? What are you clinging to? 
See, Jesus is asking you to lay it down. When you lay it down, you lose nothing. You, in fact, free up your hands to gain everything. Jesus loves to fill empty spaces. In fact, in Ephesians, it says he's going to fill all in all, but not if it's already full of pride and self. Today, would you humble yourself? Would you lay that down so that you might receive the fullness of who Jesus Christ is? The gospel comes to the empty, the humble. He'll change your life. You understand, when God did it this way, he's chosen not to work through the the proud, the strong, the great. When God did that, he changed everything. Do you understand now greatness is available to everyone? You don't understand it yet. In geopolitical economic, I don't have time for that. Well, I do. We fight. I took a class on economics, geopolitical economics, world economics, and we fight. It was astounding to me. No, the best system is capitalism where the means of production is privately owned. Yeah, I believe that's the best of all broken systems. The problem with capitalism is sin, greed, where we don't share and love individually. So then the world pushes. No, the best means of economics is socialism where the means of production is publicly owned. Okay, the problem with socialism is sin. We're lazy and greedy. I'll want you to work for me and I'll sit at home and watch Dr. Phil, amen? You pay for my medical expenses. The problem with socialism is sin. So we'll push further. No communism where the means of production is is governmentally owned. Okay. Problem with communism is sin. All animals are created equal. Some are just more equal. (laughs) Never mind. It's an animal farm. You can read it. Great book. So what's wrong with all economic systems? Sin. Do you understand what Jesus, what the Father did when he crossed his hands and made it about grace is all you need to be great is nothing. Humble yourself. Be empty. And when we do that, when we humble ourselves, he says there's greatness He's created a kingdom where we can all be equal in greatness and it is the only kingdom where greatness is available to all. Do you know, little ones, you can be great today. How? Humble yourself, empty yourself, repent, receive his grace and he says, there's greatness. You see, this kingdom takes care of all racism, all sexism, all bigotry, all fear because we're all equal, because we're all equal recipients of his grace. Not one of us deserve anything but judgment. And what did God give to us? He gave grace, which makes us all equal and we can love perfectly. Will you empty yourself, humble yourself? It's what our king did. It's what Jesus did. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. He said, this is my body, which is for you. This is my blood that's shed for you. And he says, follow me in humility, in emptiness. Let me pray and we're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper now as Ralph comes. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you that you made greatness available to all. Jesus, you made it clear if anyone wishes to be great, all they need to do is humble themselves, become servants. It's so hard to be a servant. So, So Jesus, would you give us grace now and teach us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that you modeled it for us perfectly. You laid down your life as a living sacrifice. Father, I pray now as we celebrate, 
the Lord's Supper, communion. I pray your heart would be pleased as we simply say thank you. Jesus, thank you for your life. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for shedding your blood for the remission of sin. Father, I pray you'd be pleased now as we celebrate you in Jesus' name. Amen.